Lonely Monk Productions. I don't know if y'all have seen Spider-Man Far From Home yet, but yo! That's my joy! That's my joy! What's good, friends and family, neighbors, near and far? Welcome to an all-new episode of the Yo, That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I am your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. John McClain, a.k.a. Duke Johnson, a.k.a. Sean John Diddy Combs, a.k.a. that guy who always brings a collection of Blu-rays bought at the last minute at the 7-Eleven around the corner for the White Elephant Exchange at the company Christmas party, a.k.a. Nate 3.0. Back at it again here with another episode of the podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in good spirits. Well, what's up, folks? Okay, so you know how your favorite podcasts and TV shows always take a holiday break and they either do things like a mailbag episode or a clip show or they just air a repeat. Well, I realized why that is. This time of year is busy as fuck. So, yes, this podcast comes to you a little delayed, but you got it. So cut me some slack. I am but one man swimming in a sea of lights and elves and fat men in chimneys and lines at the store. And to be honest, a COVID variant that has come swinging through Whoville trying to snatch up all of our toys. And, well, you get it. Anyway, you could be anywhere in the world. And yet you're here with me. And I appreciate that. In a wee bit, I'll be joined by Dan Drago of the 25 O'Clock Podcast. We had a phenomenal conversation. uh, So phenomenal that it clocked in as my longest interview to date. So we're going to break this up into two parts. Part one, which you are listening to right now. Well, that drops today. Part two will drop next week on Monday, the 27th. And I can hear you already. Well, I don't trust your promises, Nate. And that's fair, but you can trust this one. As a matter of fact, the episode is already edited and scheduled, so there is no chance that I don't hit that target. I mean, well, unless, of course, the world ends, which, look, would any of us be surprised at that by this point? We're also going to drop a little Christmas Eve pod full of holiday cheers. Consider it the John Before Christmas. It's going to be made up of some tracks from last year's In Basement sing-along and maybe some new treats. Maybe. We'll see. But speaking of new treats in this proper podcast space, I just want to give you a little taste of what kind of tidings of joy we have in store for you, especially if you missed last year's live stream. You see, it's me. And it's a ukulele, and it sounds a little something like this. Gives I'm preparing for some Christmas sharing, but I pause because hanging my stocking, I can hear knocking. Is that you, Santa Claus? Sure is dark out, ain't the slightest spark out on my clanking jaws. Who's there? Who is it? Stopping for a visit. Is that you, Santa Claus? Are you bringing a present for me? Something pleasantly pleasant for me. And it's just what I've been waiting for, but... 
Would you mind slipping it under the door? Oh, winds are howling. What oh, could that be growling? My legs feel like straws. My, my, homie, my. Kindly, would you reply? Is that you, Santa Claus? <laughs> The stocking, I can hear a knocking. Is that you, Santa Claus? Who's there? Who is it? Stopping for a visit. Is that you, Santa Claus? <laughs> Today, but I can't explain why I'm shaking this way. Oh, now I can see old Santa through the keyhole. I'll get to the cause. One peek and I'll try them. Is that an eye there? Is that you, Santa Claus? Please, please, I'm begging my please. Oh. My guest today is a former touring musician who in 2014 decided to sit down at his kitchen table, set up some microphones, and start talking to his friends and acquaintances in the Philly music scene. Those conversations were the start of the 25 O'Clock Podcast, Philadelphia's longest-running music podcast, dot, 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 he thinks. I think so, too. This year, he has celebrated his 200th episode, and he shows zero signs of slowing down. His podcast is, without a doubt, one of the most important showcases of the Philadelphia music scene, and I am beyond honored to have him on the show here with me today, folks. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dan Drago. All right. Now it's all yours. I'll, I'll, I'll get out of the driver's seat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by the great Dan Drago. Dan, thank you for joining me on Yo, That's My John. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Nate. So I like to tell everybody kind of how I um, find out about people. So in the early days of kind of creating or not even even before creating the podcast, right? What I wanted to do um, was uh, literally what you're doing, but you're already doing that space. <laughs> so so but no. So I found you and I was like, oh, shit, someone's doing it. But in, it wasn't like a feeling of like, damn, I guess I can't do it. It was more like of uh, like a relief, like finding you was like a relief because there's so much great talent in this area that i was glad that someone was 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 talking to people from this area um so before anything i just want to thank you for um <laughs> for showcasing the brilliant musicians that you know that i'm sure we've all piled around with for the the past oh, however long 
You're welcome. I'm, I'm glad I could offer some sort of validation when you were coming up with an idea, because sometimes it is good. It isn't a deterrent to see someone else also have your idea. You're just like, oh, good. My idea is not, not insane. Because right. Someone right. Else is doing it. But when I started the show, there was nobody doing it. So I looked, I'm like, well, this is just going to be my weird thing, man. Like, this is just gonna be the thing I do. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I love that um, that you like to tag on is the longest running Philadelphia podcast mu- or music podcast, maybe or, or what, what is that? I think. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, but but it's got to be. Um, uh, I, I, I am ninety nine point nine percent sure that it is. And then we threw that tagline around. We except we took the, the I think out, but then we threw that around in press when I was like doing my two, getting ready to do my 200th episode. And I thought like, well, here's, you know, here's do or die. Like, here's where we're going to find out. Yeah. Like, some yeah. crawl up and be like, I've been doing it for for, you know, like two weeks longer than I have. And then I would have to bow to them. I'd be like, no, you, you are correct. You have been doing it longer than me. Um, but no one either, nobody wants to admit it or uh, it's not a thing. That's, a, that's right. That's right. I love it. Um, so tell everyone listening a little bit about yourself. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Western New York. Uh, I'm from Rochester, New York. I was born in okay. Philadelphia. Uh simply because this is where my parents lived when I was born. Uh, we don't have family here. I no real ties here to the area at all. Uh, this is just where my father got, you know, his first job when he, my mom got married and he got a job like, like you do. Uh, and you know, a few years later there, there I come. Um, we kind of lived around the area, like Norristown, King of Prussia, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, but when I came back here uh, in would have been like 03 or 04, it was just kind of weird and funny. It's just like, oh, I guess I'm going back. But like it didn't feel I wasn't going home. Like right. home, home is Western New York. Like home, home is Rochester. So, you know, it's but I always have to throw that in there. I'm like, technically, I am from here. <laughs> you've got you've got um you've got an anchor uh uh, yeah. uh call to philly i like it i like born, it uh oh, go born, ahead, on city, b- born on city line avenue like that oh so you <laughs> can't get much more philly yeah yeah oh, i was funny when i was getting uh, i was getting interviewed for uh from mainline today the the mainline glossy magazine which was fun i'd never appeared like in a like a legit like you know magazine magazine something you could buy in a newsstand it was wild uh that was sort of the the thing that i pitched to them where i was just like i was born technically on the main line side of city line avenue uh the hospital i was born in i think uh that building is now part of saint joseph's uh campus i think it's a dorm or something okay okay so when you're growing up you know uh how long were you in before you guys moved back I, I moved. We moved back to Rochester. I think it was like two or three years old. Okay. Um, that we we moved into the house uh, that my grandfather built. That my father grew up in. Uh, that was the house that he got. Um, and that's we lived in there. And then we grew up in. Then I lived in uh, in Fairport, New York, which is just like another suburb outside of Rochester. Uh, anyone listening who knows about the locale will have thoughts and feelings about the different towns. And everyone else will just be like, okay. <laughs> Nice. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, went to high school there, graduated high school, went to college in Western New York, uh, out by Lake Erie and then yeah, moved here, um, uh, like Oh three Oh four. Okay. So when you were uh, growing up and you're a little kid, like what kind of music was playing around the house? Like what were your parents listening to? Uh, my dad likes a lot of, you know, I, I did dad rock essentially like, you know, sort of that genre right there. Uh, 
you know, a dad likes Neil Young, Tom Petty, The Who, Zeppelin, Jethro Tull, uh, Sabbath, uh, like like the little Zappa and Pink Floyd and things like that. Uh, he's a big Leslie West fan. That's the the guitar player for the band Mountain. Um, which later on in life, I played a show that Leslie West was also on the bill, and no one in my band thought it was a big deal except me. Except you. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Uh, and I have this picture of me with him. And then he, he died uh, a couple of years ago. And I was just like, oh, man, I'm so glad I met him because he was such a nice person. A really, really nice guy. Um, and like I called my dad from the show. I was just like, Leslie West is here. You're literally the only other person I know who gives a shit who Leslie West is. Um, but all right. Yeah. And then my mom was like, you know, my mom, like James Taylor, she liked, you know, they, they liked Joni Mitchell and, you know, things like that. Uh, Moody blues. Uh, I grew up in a, at that time in my life in, in the, uh, in the eighties, uh, my parents were, uh, big into just sort of the, what I like to call the like post seventies evangelical Christian movement. Um, so there's this, like, I I call it like hippies for Jesus essentially is what it is. So like my parents went to school in the early seventies, you know, went to college in the early seventies, kind of in that crashing wave of the sixties. And one of the things that really cropped up on campuses that kind of came with that was this sort of like hip young, you know, Bible fellowship type thing. Yeah. Uh, So not only, you know, were my parents into all this stuff I just said, they were into like also this sort of, you know, evangelical Christian equivalent of it as well, because there was tons and tons of Christian folk rock and, you know, Christian style blues rock and stuff like that. It was like every major genre and trend that existed in the seventies and early eighties, there was an analog of that. in Christian music. Uh, and that would go on well into the nineties as well, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> what kind of like, uh, what kind of artists? Cause I'm trying to like, I'm f- oh, like, vaguely like familiar. Some of me. the Christian artists. Oh gosh. I'm trying to think some of the seventies ones. I cannot think of any, like I can picture these album, like these record covers in, in my head because you know, they, they all came out of my, uh, out, of, out of my parents' record collection. And for the life of me, I cannot think of one of them right now of what any of them were called. Yeah. Um, I was like, if, if, if I had my mom on speed dial right now, like she would start telling me immediately, but like, Oh gosh, I'm, I'm give me a second here. Now I got nothing. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> but I no, remember the a- record covers and like when you're a kid, like music is music, like, right. It, you know, kind of did someone's kind of disco oriented, funk oriented and folky and stuff like that. And when you're, you know, when you're four years old, like you just want to spin around on the carpet to literally whatever is happening. Um, so, you know, I certainly didn't know the difference between, you know, a cat Stevens record and whatever else that my, my parents were playing. Yeah. It's funny that you say you remember the album covers because like, you know, to me as a kid, that was like, I, I, you know, somewhat similar, like it wasn't that I was listening to any kind of specific music. I was listening to that album covers. Cool. Dad, put that one on, you know, like that, yeah. that kind of thing. It's um, all visual. You can open them up to like, you know, the gatefold vinyl and all that. Like it's very, very cool. Um, it's something that I have sort of enjoyed uh, with, you know, the, the resurgence of vinyl over the last decade or so is that like, yeah, we, we've gotten back into big art again, 
It's awesome. You know, I, um, my, my dad had a big vinyl collection and, um, he passed away, so it's mine now. Um, but, um, like just looking at it and, and like just holding physical media on that size, on that scale gives it in, in, you know, a weight that just isn't there for anything else. And there's, you know, albums that I've had, um, you know, CDs and I've had them, you know, streaming and whatnot that like, I'm like, Oh, let me pick this up on vinyl. And it, it's like finding a new album almost because yeah. it, it, it holds so much more weight. Um, and vinyl, like, and this is weird. And like some people, some people go with me on this and some people think I'm crazy, but I definitely, I have like, not just like sonic sense memories of listening, like vinyl smelled a certain way when you were a kid, like record jackets smelled yep. a certain yep. way. And that like that very, very thin plastic that would be on the outside of the records uh, when it, you know, when they weren't covering records in paper, when they were covering in this like very thin, like that has a whole sensory thing right there. And anytime I find a record that's like coated in that very, very, it's almost like a plastic bag for yeah. your record. Like, boom, like I go back to being like four years old and like my father showing me, it's like, well, this is how you take, this is how you hold a record. You know, you don't like, like, again, don't put your fingerprints on it, you know, just, uh, and so for years, I thought if you put your fingerprint on a record, you ruined it. And it turned out he just didn't want me to grab it from that thing. So he said, don't put your fingerprints on it. So, but for years, I thought that you couldn't put your fingerprints on a record. No, don't do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Were, were your parents musical? Did they play any instruments? No, uh, which is funny because myself and my two brothers, we all play uh, in, in my brother is well into the professional music world. Uh, I have gone back and forth. Uh, my youngest brother played in high school and never really played again. Um, but we all play, but my parents didn't play. My mother's brother, my, my uncle John was, uh, was a, like a folk guitar player again, coming from that era of the early seventies. Uh, and he had bands and stuff like that. And he would always, when we were kids, you know, he would pull out the acoustic guitar and play us, you know, kid songs, play us. I've been working on the railroad. Uh, he had like this made up song. It was called the coconut song that he just basically just sung the word coconut over and over again uh, but again you're four like what what do you care <laughs> yeah yeah he knows his audience yeah oh yeah 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 yeah. he had a voice to it it was kind of like it, it had a little rhythm to it like you know I, it's, yeah um that's yeah, awesome he, he was like he's that's probably the first guitar i ever put in my hands i was probably like five or something like that where i was allowed to like touch the guitar he had a beautiful beautiful martin guitar i believe he still has Ooh. it um, nice. They got it at the Martin factory. So my parents, again, being like living in this area, um, met, you know, people through, you know, churches and Bible study and all that. And one of them was sales rep at Martin guitars in, in the late seventies. And that's how, that's how they got the guitar, uh, for, for my, uh, for my uncle. And then later on in life, when I was a teenager, uh, I went and toured, uh, the Martin factory in, in Bethlehem, um, I think that was like probably right at the point in my life where I was like getting it in my head that I could also play a guitar. Yeah. What, uh, what age is that? Like, uh, it's like, like, like 12, like 12, okay. 13. I think I get my first acoustic guitar. I'm 13, maybe 14. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but it was just, you know, off to the race. As I always joke, I go, and from that point on, my life is ruined. Like, yeah. it was, I was never going to want, normal thing like things that normal people wanted after that i was gonna 100 i was going to then make my life be all about 
how do you do this more? You know, how do you find other people to do this with? Uh, how do we get paid? Maybe, I don't know. Let's figure that one out. <laughs> yeah. I still haven't figured that part out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, um, did you take lessons or self-taught? Uh, I took lessons for the first, not even a year. Um, they, uh, there was, a it kind of all comes back to church, which is odd. I don't want to give people the wrong impression. I am not, uh, necessarily a churchy religious person myself now uh and that's just simply to say so that i don't give the wrong impression uh of myself uh it's not a value judgment i just don't want i don't want to give the wrong impression um but we were going to methodist church uh growing up and in like the second floor of the methodist church uh a couple of old folkies like set up a guitar, like a little music school up there. They just, you know, uh, rented space from the church. And so I started taking lessons up there. There's this uh, old folk guy. His name was Ralph. He taught me, uh, you know, uh, where to put my hands and how to, you know, how to pick and how to play, you know, old folk songs. He taught me, was the first song he ever taught me was uh, uh, the Dream On by Aerosmith. Oh, nice. Uh, not an easy song to get. Yeah, to that's feeding the fire. The- and at the time, that would have been like probably 93 or 94. There were, to me, there was nothing less cool than like playing an Aerosmith song. I wanted to play Nirvana. I wanted to play Soundgarden. I wanted to play Smashing Pumpkins. Like that was, you know, that was what I wanted. I, you know, I could care nothing for, you know, this, this dinosaur band. Um, but I can still play that riff. Like I can still play, the, you know, like that opening, that whole part that Joe Perry plays right there. Again, pretty complex, but he was teaching me in that. He was teaching me hammer-ons. He was teaching me, uh, you know, certain like, like riffs that had, you know, more than one string in them and stuff like that. So I got to give it to Ralph, uh, wherever he is. I, I would imagine he's probably passed on at this point. Uh, cause that was a long time ago. Uh, but I got to give it to him. Uh, he, he taught me a couple of things. And then as soon as I had like even remotely just the most rudimentary tools, I was out of there. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right, thanks. I'm going to go like, I'm going to go be in a garage with my friends and suck. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, you know, off to the races, what, um, do you, are you, are, are you just trying to learn other people's stuff at that point? Or are you immediately writing songs? Like when I started, when I learned how to play, I immediately was like, Oh, these are chords. Now I can just get all of this out of my head and, and do something with it. Were were you that way or? Uh, not immediately. Uh, I was in a band with my best friend, James Hearn, who's still my best friend to this day. Um, he lives in Austin now, uh, but he used to live up on the East Coast. And we, yeah, we were just like teenagers, just like in the, in the garage, in the basement, making tapes, like just on a cassette recorder of just the two of us, like figuring out how to play Nirvana tunes, figuring out how to play, you know, like Radiohead tunes off the bends and stuff like that. Um, but James wrote a lot of songs and I, I think at the time I was just like, well, if one of us writes songs, you just write the songs like, and I'll just write, I'll help you write the songs, but you, you know, you write the songs. It wasn't until later that I got more into writing my own songs. I was also just super into learning how to play other people's songs. So I was, a I think what was big on the like uh, the the Goo Goo Dolls were like had just broken at that point, and they're from Buffalo, so you know not not too far 
down the road from where I was from. Uh, and I remember learning how to play name and learning what an alternate tuning was because I didn't know what an alternate tuning was at that point. Um, learning how to play that. I was a huge Jim Blossoms fan, just the biggest. Um, and then there was this band out of Boston, uh, didn't get quite the acclaim as everyone else, but there was a band called Buffalo Tom that was oh my also God, yes. who are just like, like Bill Janovitz is like an unsung treasure. That whole band is just an unsung treasure of the nineties. They're one of the best night, like nineties, like, you know, guitar, like power pop bands, uh, not, yeah, them County Crows, uh, we're big County Crows fans, uh, wallflowers when they came out, I thought they were outstanding. Um, uh, I like, I, too much to my dad's chagrin. I, I liked, uh, Jacob more than Bob, uh, oh. at that time. Uh, I still think I might, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's cool. If I can say that out loud, but I think I just might be more of a Jacob guy than a Bob guy. And I love Bob, but like, if you're going to say it, this is the place to say it, because I don't know if you know, but the 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 <laughs> motto of this podcast is displace the guilt, embrace, embrace the pleasure. So like <laughs> it is it. It, it is literally the place to make unpopular. I originally was going to um, we'll get to it way later. Um, but <laughs> uh, one of the things in the uh, uh, top 10 countdown that I was going to originally have in there was uh, give me an unpopular music opinion. Um, but uh, a friend of mine was like. Uh, that's a really challenging question to throw at just anybody. And I was like, I don't want to talk to just anybody. I want to talk yeah. to people who have an answer to oh, it. I, I, I have tons. I have tons of unpopular music opinions. <laughs> Give me one. Give me one besides Bob Dylan and Jacob Dylan. Oh, I mean, and that's just a preference thing. Like, that's not yeah. me. Like, I think I, I love Bob Dylan. Like, you know, I don't think that you can, you know, be of my age with this beard glasses combo thing I have going here um, without, you know, without being a Bob guy. And I definitely went through my, my Bob phases, uh, you know, really dove in lyrically and stuff like that to like, you know, see what he was about, but like an unpopular, I mean, let me think. Oh yeah. Uh, so this has come up recent, recently uh, because of get back uh, the, the, the Beatles documentary on, on, uh, on the 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 app i won't they don't need they don't need, they don't need more that. press yeah they don't need it um but i said it was at thanksgiving uh it was me my brother and my father and we were both a little into our cups at that point uh and i just kind of blurted because we were all three of us paul guys like we're just all like died in the wood paul guys and one thing you kind of learn in that first episode is just like how great George, I mean, you always know how great George is. Um, but that whole thing where he's bringing them all these songs and they're just shouting them down. And those songs will go on yeah. to be on all things must pass. Like possibly one of possibly the greatest post beetle record on its own. I'm not talking about career. I'm just talking about like on its own, like that or Ram, like, I don't know. But anyway, um, I blurted out. I was like, John, I'm like, like John Lennon is the least, the, the, the least uh, talented member of the Beatles, hands down. Wow. I was like, I was like, they, I'm like, like, absolutely. And like, I really, when I said that, it was like a record scratch. My brother, my father, like, what? And I'm like, okay. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to get into it. I just, I, I, I'm not a John guy. He's fine. Yeah. Uh, he had the charisma. He had the character, clearly had the most personality of everyone in the band. But if you want to take it pound for pound, songwriting and playing ability, uh, He's he's the worst of them. His yeah. his guitar playing in that documentary sounds so bad. It sounds terrible. And like someone said to me once, it's like, well, you know, he's got an Epiphone Casino and George has got a Rosewood Telly. I go, you switch those guitars, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, like, yeah. 
George is still like George is still miles ahead. And like even Paul's a really good guitar player. Uh, John, again, charisma and personality. And, you know, in a rock band, that's as important as being able to play the guitar. So yeah. you know, good I, uh, on you, John, for that. But, you know, I, I'm not a, not a John guy. I was always a George guy. So like, and I know that sounds like so um, weird, but like one of my favorite moments in anything ever, and I call it the greatest um, passive aggressive moment in the history of mankind is in that first episode. And it is, um, I remember it when I first saw Let It Be. And it is when he just says, um, I'll play whatever you want me to play, Paul. I won't play at all. (laughs) Yes. Oh God. Yeah. It's just, but anyone who's ever been in a band, like that moment is so real. I saw that. Okay. So we're going to go off on a little tangent right here. You've seen that footage before this Peter Jackson thing. So have I. No one believes me that like there was a Let It Be documentary film that kicked around. I think it was on the BBC or something. I think they probably showed it at Christmas. I had a VHS bootleg of it in college. Someone got it. And we took it to the media lab and we spun off a handful of VHS copies of it so we could have it. And I watched the shit out of that. Yeah. I watched it so much. So that like that scene right there. And as I was watching the first episode, get back. I was just like, I've seen this before. I've seen yeah. a lot of this before. Now the footage was much better and it was edited better. And it was just, they were telling a different story this time around, but I'm like, watch it. I was like, I've seen this. I know what's, I know what he's going to say. Okay, good. I'm not crazy. <laughs> That's the best part is like, I literally as like, I've talked about it countlessly um, forever. And then when that part happened, I was like, oh my God, I remembered it exactly. It's as real. Well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and again, it's such a great moment. He's like, I'll play what you want. I'll play whatever you want. Or I won't play at all. Like yep. you can just tell at that point, he's just like, I've had it. Yeah. I've had it. I'm done being kind, gentle George, the young boy, the little one of the band. I'm George Harrison. Like, and, and, you know, I think that um, Get Back does a better job of framing Paul in that conversation as well at just saying like, no, I'm not saying that. Like, I'm just what I'm trying to get at is, you uh, know, like, I just but, think it was just a, it's such a hor- like what a I'm glad we have the footage. And everything, but what a horrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> to stick them all in that room, in that soundstage, from what I understand, was freezing. Like, because they're oh, all really? in coats. Like, they're not wearing coats to be stylish. Like, they're wearing coats because it's cold on that soundstage. And they're just like trudging in every day at like 9 a.m. to go write the next Beatles record. And oh, by the way, there are five cameras moving around you right now. Like, talk about something that's so very anti-creative to think about the music that came out of those sessions is really fascinating because i couldn't imagine like you know the fact that they kind of imploded or whatnot you know is legendary or but like you that couldn't have helped (laughs) you know like that they were just they were it's it's like and you've i mean you've been in bands i yes uh, yep okay like there's a certain age that you get to where you want to do something else. You want to try something else. And it could even just be different kind of music or a different sort of ensemble or something. And they were at that age because they, they were kids. They were kids when they met, they cut their teeth in the, you know, in, in, in the, the cabarets and the, the, the clubs, like again, playing three shows a night, play six hours a night, five, six nights a week. You've seen the eight days a week documentary yep. that, uh, yeah. Ron Howard. Yeah. Ron Howard. If, that, if that doc doesn't show you that like for a period, they were probably the best live band 
to exist just based on just 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 hours worked you know those hamburg runs and stuff like that you know they play they play like 30 hours in a week and yeah, practice yeah. so of course they're going to be great but they go and they become the biggest thing in the world and it becomes insane and they're so young they're not even done being like figuring out who they are as people yet uh, and then I think they get to an age around like, let it be where they're just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like they have kids and stuff like that. They're just like, I don't want to be the Beatles anymore. It's really yeah. hard. And and not just that, but I mean, you see it with John, you see it with, with George, like they had different, like they were listening to different stuff and like, you know, and Paul's right. You know, is, is, like I, I've been known to be a Paul hater, which isn't really hate. It's just that like I'm, I'm hypercritical of him. And I think it's just because he he's alive. Um, it's really <laughs> it's really it's it's his own fault for outliving everybody else. But and you can't um, kick Ringo around, man. Yeah, That's exactly. Not, exactly. No, so not, Paul's just my whipping boy. But um, but you see him mine much- and he's dead. So like that <laughs> even worse for me. And there's like, you know, he's dead. I go, it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah. Do I look like Mark David Chapman? Uh <laughs> Don't answer that. Uh, so, <laughs> but, uh, but no, like you hear Paul constantly saying like, we're just a rock and roll band, you know? And like, you know, George was like so far past that at that point. Like he no longer wanted to rock. Like that wasn't, that wasn't his bag anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, he, he wanted to, yeah. He was highly influenced, not just by Eastern music. Like everyone says, like everyone saddles George with like, you know, Oh, he was the Eastern music guy. Cause they were all into it. Yeah. And John, I mean, here's where I'll give John credit. John wrote I, some of the better tunes in the Beatles that integrated that Eastern music. I, I absolutely think so. Um, but George was like ready, not just to go off and like write, you know, Eastern music songs. He just wanted to put it in his brain with all the other stuff in there um, and go off and again, go off and beat George Harrison. Uh, yeah. Which, we all see how well that worked out really well for him. Tell very well for him. <laughs> yeah. Very well. Um, so when, when do you put together your, not to jump, oh, sure. jump back in, but uh, when do you start your first band? Like what was. Uh... I'm like 15, 16. Uh, me, me and my buddy James uh, in the basement uh, and we're wandering around and we find uh, this kid who just moved to town like that year. He was a year ahead of us. His name was Tony, Tony Schleen. And he was the best candidate as a drummer because he had played percussion in orchestra and had a snare drum. Okay. Um, Just a snare drum. (laughs) But we're like, well, that's more than we have. Like we don't have that. And I think between the three of us, we all pooled our money and got him a cheap kit. Like, cause we're just, we're just like, okay, we have to go. We have to do this now. Like we don't have time to wait for Christmas or birthday or whatever. Like we found someone who had a kit I think it was like $150 or something like that, which, you know, in 1995, like between three teenagers, we were just like, all right, well, let's scrape together 150 bucks. And we did. And we got him a drum kit and a couple of cymbals. And again, boom, we're off there. I was playing guitar. James was playing guitar. Uh, and our buddy, uh, Tommy McGarry was playing bass. And Tommy's dad was like the director of the music department at Nazareth College. Like their their dog's name was Bartok. Like, you know, that's the kind of world that Tommy came from. And Tommy was a really good upright uh, orchestral and jazz bass player. Uh, but he, again, in his sort of, I just probably a little bit of a rebellion for him at the time, uh, he wanted to play the electric bass in a rock band. Um, and so that's how we ended up. We were these four guys, just James had original songs. Um, I think that's, I think back about like 
how I, how we form as a band. And it is interesting. I know it's not the norm that right off the bat, we had like, I think in between four and six original songs that oh, we were wow. just like, oh, wow. ready. Like James had written a bunch of songs, you know, sad, angsty teenage songs um, that we put behind like really happy, like power poppy uh, chord progressions. Cause that's how you sell it. Um, and we were never like, we were always influenced by things. Cause as I said, we love Jim Blossoms, love Buffalo Tom. We love the County Crest. Um, but we very much, and I don't think we would have had the words for it at the time, but we very much wanted to be our own thing. We wanted to be influenced, but not be like trying to be these things. Cause we loved all kinds of stuff too. And we loved Hendrix and I was, a, I'm a big who fan and we love green day and, you know, um, like rancid and like, you know, the punk of the nineties is what well. we loved all that stuff. And we loved nine inch nails and, you know, like all, all kinds of stuff. Cause it's the nineties and it was all kind of on the radio and all there, uh, all there for you to, to, to have. Um, as we got older, again, talking about the Beatles, like we were just like the Beatles and that we all bring like broke apart. But like, as we got older, you know, we would find our things. Like I became a, a, a lot more into like what was kind of like, electronic music in the 90s so i was a big portishead fan although they're not particularly electronic um but then like at the time and like you know 96 97 you get the prodigy and you get crystal method and you get you know orbital and stuff like that and that's like kind of in the groundwater as well um and i was always i was at a pension a little bit for the heavier stuff like i was i loved you know stuff like white zombie um monster magnet you know uh Later, you know, they weren't around then, but like later, uh, I would discover Caius, but they were, you know, because through Queens of the Stone Age and realized like, oh, this would have been right up my alley at the time. And I loved Black Sabbath and I loved, you know, uh, and Soundgarden too. Soundgarden were a huge band for me because they were just, their their sound was so much bigger. Uh, and Chris Cornell could sing the hell out of anything. <laughs> I, I miss that man so much. I, I'm still, I, you know, um, there's a, a, a thing later on about uh, shows that you wish you had seen, like Temple of the Dog did a tour right before Chris. I Cornell didn't go came. either. I didn't, didn't go, go either. Yeah. I was just like, I'm not going to this. And I didn't go to the sound. I didn't go to the, the, the super unknown, like 25 year reunion tour. And if you think I don't kick myself about that, oh man, like, yeah. um, yeah. I, I, I interviewed a, I interviewed a, a woman, uh, she plays under the name Hemming. Uh, she hasn't, uh, hadn't been active uh, in, in a couple of years, but you know, who, who of us has been, uh, <laughs> but, uh, she did, uh, she got to go open for him on his solo tour. Uh, like when he was just out, just him and a, just Chris and a guitar, like, you know, playing theaters and she got to open for him um which was great because she was such a huge fan uh and then she found out as she was on tour like the other people told her they're like you know he watches your set from from the from the side stage she's like he doesn't do that normally he doesn't have to um there's like but he comes out every night he watches you for at least two or three songs and then he Jesus. you know goes back in the dressing room and she wouldn't she didn't know that you know for 30 minutes or so that she was up there um but she always will. She says she'll always remember that about him, like him just being this. And he said he was incredibly kind to her and just, you know, very supportive. And just the fact that he rolled out every night and watched a couple songs just because he dug it. And I was just like, cool, that dude still loved music. Like, yeah. you know, that, yeah, whatever was going on inside him, you know, he was just, he was still happy to be playing 
be playing music. It's funny. I was watching Casino Royale uh, a little bit ago, kind of rewatching all the the Daniel Craig Bonds in lieu of the new Daniel Craig Bond. And he sings the the theme to Casino Royale. And he starts singing it. I watched it because I was like, God damn, this is probably like one of the best Bond themes. I'm like second to like maybe Tom Jones's Thunderball or something like that. Or, you know, or you only live twice or something or Goldfinger. Yeah. I was just like, God, this is like, I can't remember the song, but like that, that hook to that Bond theme, you're just like, oh yeah, he could do anything. <laughs> that, that, that theme and um, the one that Jack White and Alicia Keys did. Um, yeah, were- Quantum, the Quantum of Solace one, yeah. There were two moments where, because I at up until that point, I was like, um, I don't know that we're going to have another good Bond theme, so maybe we should stop trying. And then they were like, one, two, here you go. And I was like, okay, I'm wrong. So Yeah, yeah, because like a lot of the Brosnan Bonds, like I couldn't tell you anything about those themes. I'm sure they were just like what they always do, a pop singer or something like that. Um, I couldn't like... But like, let's not discount like the Timothy Dalton ones because that's where we get Duran Duran's uh, "A View to a Kill," and that's uh, and "Live and Let Die" is more is Roger yep. Moore, I, I believe. That's okay. I can't believe that didn't come up in like my big, you know, Bond <laughs> themes. But like, but "A View to a Kill" is a great tune. So I love good. I love Duran Duran. Like, I think Duran Duran is outstanding. And like, any time any big Duran Duran hit comes on the radio, like I will turn it up because it's. It's Duran Duran. Like what that's that's so good they named it twice. <laughs> so so um you were you were a touring musician for uh for a few years. Like uh how did what band um did you play with to to do that or was were you bouncing around from um so I was in the band with my buddies uh in high school into college uh it changed and moved around we all also in the 90s we a lot of us uh, at least the three core of us me james and tony all became huge fish fans um, okay it was just it was the time and i just it got fed to me at the right time and i just took it like and i still am to this day like a huge huge fish fan um and so we started writing songs under the idea of like okay can we have composed sections you know just in the way that like fish would have and then can we jam and can we jam in a way that's actually useful like in the way that they did it or that the dead did it uh as opposed to you know the other thing where you know you just someone just extended guitar solos for right. 20 minutes we call sure. that jam. um we were very conscious at the time of like okay what how can we listen to each other and move and change and throw stuff in there and add us? And I, I think we were all right at it. Like we weren't great at it, but you know, for that age, uh, I think we did. Okay. Um, but then, you know, life happening, we all went to college and stuff like that and kind of moved, you know, in different places. And, um, but I moved back to Philly. I moved to Philly in around 0304. James was already living here. And when I moved here, it was like, okay, let's have a band as adults, like, or like, you know, like, we can just live in a house and practice all the time and write songs together all the time and decide what it is that this band is going to be. And that's what I did. I came back, I came to Philadelphia to pretty much do that. Cause I was living, I was living in, in Fredonia, New York, uh, which is right on Lake Erie, which is where I went to college, uh, working a couple of jobs and just, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I knew I didn't want to stay in Western New York. I don't dislike Western New York, but I just, I knew that there was, there was other stuff happening somewhere. I'd been to New York, you know, a handful of times in school. Uh, and I think if I hadn't ended up in Philly, I probably would have ended up in, in New York City because um, everything cool 
everything I thought was cool came from New York City. Um, yeah. Because you get that at, at that age, especially if you grow up East Coasty or not East Coasty. It's just New York City is so much in just in the zeitgeist. Like it's that's just right. New York, New York, New York. Like, and whatever it is that you like, if it's film, if it's art, if it's music, uh, if it's food or whatever, like you will find like New York does it the best. Uh, you know, I, I was big into the Velvet Underground and, you know, CBGB's bands and television and talking heads and stuff like that. And the Ramones. And I was just like, Oh, well, New York is where it all happens. And then, you know, the strokes come out in like 2001. Yeah. 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 And stuff like that. You kind of get that resurgence of like New York, like, like downtown New York. Cool. Again. Uh, and then no one can afford to live there uh, ever again. <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, but so I come back to Philly. And we start this band together uh, and it goes through a few different, you know, versions and names and things like that. But it eventually becomes this band called The Way Home. Uh, and that's like, I'd say a good three or four years of that being kind of what the band was. Um, not dissimilar to our high school days in terms of like, you know, kind of power pop guitar led stuff but a lot of vocal harmonies three or four parts that was always a thing anyone who had was going to be in the band they had to sing like you had to be able to sing you didn't have to sing lead but like you had to be able to blend and pick a part and you know come in that was just so key to us that like you know vocal harmonies and this is sort of like pre-fleet foxes okay. uh, uh, later, like all that, like would kind of, you know, take that stuff that would be popular, but we were doing it at a time when people are just like, well, they all sing together really well, but it was sort of that we, it was almost like a circus trick, uh, to a lot of people, not to us. I mean, we took it very seriously, but like you would get up and you would do four part harmony and, you know, break down and we would do acapella stuff and things like that. And people would be like, oh, that was neat. And I was just like, oh, this is a parlor trick to them. Like, they just think it's neat. And to us, it was like, no, this is like what we, are. this is part of what we are. Um, and yeah, we kind of toured regionally on that. You know, we were never signed to a label, never had a tour manager or anything like that. We just, you know, DIY figured it out ourselves. Um, met cool people, played in interesting places, had interesting experiences. And then what happens is you kind of find yourself rolling into your early thirties and you start to wonder like, okay, well, clearly I don't get to make a living doing this. Like, right. But you still want to do it. And you know, that's kind of where it sort of fell apart a little bit, which is, you know, it's like, it is, I'm still friends with everyone. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Who else, like wh who were you playing around? Like what other bands were around or, or where, like, also, where were you playing kind of in the city? Because um, um, that's right around the time I was kind of starting to do a little original what stuff was, out there. What but. was your band or was it just you? Um, so I was in a band um, called The Impact Players. And that was mostly just me. And uh, I mean, we had a full band. But anytime anybody had ever really seen us, it was just me and a buddy of mine playing acoustic. And everyone was always like, you guys are like Tenacious D. And it was like one of those, <laughs> like, we're fucking not. Like, uh, you know, please. like... They're uh, like, fine. And, that's not us. Yeah, Again, it's like, not a parlor trick. Yeah. Right. Exa and that's exactly right. Um, but um, but all, all all the like main original stuff that I did out, I did solo as an artist named. Uh, you can see it in my Zoom title there. Nate three was kind of my uh, nom de plume. Uh, we played. I we were Philly based. Um, we played. Uh, we played the Kyber uh, back when the stage was downstairs. Uh, we played you know, Tin Angel. We played. Uh, 
Dobbs. Uh, well, we would play the pon- we played the Pontiac uh, before it got rebranded as the legendary Dobbs uh, to kind of bring back the old name. Uh, and the Pontiac, uh, the stage was upstairs. We were upstairs and it was yeah. like, it was real, just real janky, but like kind of great. Like it was kind of one of those kind of great rooms. That if you get 30 or 40 people in there, like it feels like a good night, not dissimilar to what it was like playing at Bourbon and Branch, you know, Bourbon and Branch, you get 50 show people in there and it just, it feels tight. It feels like a good packed night. And, you know, sometimes that's, that's all you need. Um, we played there. Yeah. Uh, Dobbs. Um, uh, what was the place on, on, uh, Doc Watson's. Oh yeah. Uh, I love that place. I when love Watts, that yeah. Second floor used to play second floor. Uh, MMR used to have a lot of nights at, at Doc Watson's, uh, back then. And then, uh, where else? Like world cafe live upstairs, you know, when they first opened, we, we, uh, Whoever was booking that upstairs stage, not the not the big down, not the big people downstairs stage, right. um, was pretty was very receptive to to Philly bands. And so, if we could pitch them like a four band night where we're just like, okay, between these four bands, we can probably sell 150 tickets. You know, they were fine with that. They were just like, yeah, sure, sounds good. And you know, I always liked working with like. World Cafe and uh, World Cafe and um, North Star, because uh, again, like you would just go into these situations and everyone, the expectations were right up front. There was no screwing around. There was, you know, you knew where you stood. You knew what you needed to do to have, you know, have a financially successful night. And it was good. I always play the fire, you know, like like everyone did, yeah. <laughs> one point or another. You know, Derek Derek Dorsey. Uh, as a promoter is gave a lot of bands their first go at putting together a night in a, in a club and people can say what they will about the fire, whether they liked it or hated it or whatever, but there were not a lot of places giving us that opportunity. Uh, we should play the Manhattan room or the M room uh, that was up on uh it's basically up caddy corner to Johnny Brendis now, except Johnny Brendis didn't have a music room that not till uh, 2008. Um, that was the place to go. There was a great little, uh, there's a promoter named uh, Joe Lekas who used to be in a band called Grammar Debate, who were a really great band. Um, and we met him somehow through other people and he would book us. He would also, he used to book the Kyber as well, uh, back, you know, kind of back towards the end, uh, last few years of the Kyber. Um, but yeah, those were the places that we played in Philly, which is like, when people say that, like, oh, there were less clubs back then than there are now, I'm like, no, I just listed a whole bunch of rooms. <laughs> like, yeah. There were a lot of places to play. Uh, and we would play some stuff for Penn and Drexel and Temple and things like that. You know, we would figure that out, you know, figure out how to do that. And we would play over in Jersey. Uh, there was a couple of rooms in Vineland. Uh, there's rooms again now in Vineland, from what I hear. But there were a couple of places that we would play uh, in Jersey. Or we go up to Steel City in Phoenixville. Yeah there uh or play either of the milk boys uh either the one in Bryn Mawr or the one in uh Ardmore um yeah because there was no milk boy uh yet here in in Philly there was lickety split at fourth and south love used that to play place. that just play that tiny tiny little stage up there weren't they on it. bar rescue or something like that towards uh, the don't, end, get, don't get me started about the uh about the former owner of, <laughs> of lickety split he's still a person that if I ever saw him in person uh, I, I would probably throw something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah. yeah, those are, I mean, those were the places to play. And there was like kind of a crew amongst a certain level, you know, I remember it was us, people like Danny Marie, uh, Katie Barbado. Um, and we would play Connie's too. God, I can't believe we left out Connie's. Um, and we were kind of, yeah, we would play with like those kind of bands, the band called Venice Sunlight, uh, that we used to play with a whole bunch. Uh, those are just the bands off the top of my head. We, you know, there were a handful of bands that we would kind of find ourselves on bills with over and over again. Uh, and you just become friends. Like that's, yeah. you start yeah. hanging out and hanging out when it, you go to each other's shows and stuff like that. And then, you know, it's, it's your, I was joking. It's, it's like, it's like a little graduating class or something like that's your, that's your class. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I really miss, I, like, I, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I was talking to Nicole Atkins about this, about how, like, I, I don't know if I am just too old or if this scene just like the live scene and like kind of the live camaraderie just doesn't exist anymore. Like, I just can't, I can't pinpoint it. And I know it, the pandemic. We're, we're, up, we're too old. That's, that's exactly what it is, is that we're, we're too old because I talk to people like, Oh, like, you know, Tyler from Tisbury's and August from Riverby and like, you know, uh, and Coleman Rig and like people like that. And like they all there's a real kind of like Maniunk scene, like Jamie and the Guarded Heart and, you know, and all these best bear and like all these people know each other, like not just like they know each other, like that's their class right there. Uh, yeah. So it is because we, we are too old like okay. that. Yeah, I thought <laughs> so. yeah, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Speaking of too old, yeah. You speaking of too old. You said you 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 around thirty ish kind of started to phase out. Did you immediately jump into the kind of pod space, or or did you take some time to just regroup? So I was thirty three. I left the band, uh, which was a huge deal. Like at the time, it was like a divorce a little bit because you know. Also, up to that point, like so, it's two thousand thirteen. I'm thirty three years old. And I've been in bands since I was like 15, like more than half my life. A large part of my attention is taken up by band stuff, you know, yeah. writing songs, going to rehearsals, playing shows, you know, making records, blah, 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 blah. All that occupied a part of my brain and like, you know, was part of who I was. And suddenly there I am 33 and I'm just like, well, I'm not a band anymore. And I had no interest in like, oh, I'll go solo. It's like, no, I don't want to do that either. Um, so I kind of kicked around a little bit. I got involved in like production because I'd always that always kind of been my role in other bands is figuring out like, well, how do I record us, you know, thing things like that. And I started like working with other friends and bands doing recording sessions. I had a mobile rig, so I was like, well, let's do this. Did that for a little bit. Uh, I started a live concert series, like a DIY concert series out of the Fleischer Art Memorial, which is in uh, in Bella Vista. It's an art school hooked to like an old like decommissioned church space. And that church space, you know, high ceilings, tile floors, just gorgeous sound. Uh, and we put on a whole bunch of shows there. It was a lot of fun. Um, like localish people. Uh, I remember uh, there's a band called... Uh, the Naked Sun, my my buddy Drew's band. Uh, that's how I met him. Uh, just doing these shows and like bands like I'm trying to think now off the top of my head because I have the rec- I, I I have a lot of the recordings. I did. I was able to do like multi track live recordings as well. Um, There's a whole bunch of bands and it was a lot of fun. And I wasn't particularly interested in trying to compete 
like a venue because I was like, well, this is a nonprofit. We haven't budgeted. Like we have X amount of money to spend in a season on bands. So we just split that up between however X number of bands, everyone's getting paid. We can just book whoever we want. Like I don't have to worry about like, oh, if I book people, will they bring 50 people? I'm just like, hey, you want to play? Yeah. You want a hundred bucks? Yeah. All right, cool. Come play. Bring some people. Like we'll put two bands on and we'll sell beer, like, you know, kind of thing. And it was great. And, you know, it was my PA and everything. So I was the showrunner for it. It was a lot of fun. Um, I worked with, uh, it's the interview that's out this week, actually on, on my show, uh, a guy named, uh, Rasan Lucas, who's a promoter for a, uh, production company called, uh, Afro Taino. And they were booking a lot of, you know, Latin alternative and, you know, Latin style bands. And he and I ran the very first Chicano Batman show uh, in Philadelphia. Oh, holy crap. To to a crowd of maybe 40 people. If there were 40 people there, uh, that's about as much as I can imagine being there. And these guys, just four guys from East LA, they'd never played the East Coast before. They were doing pretty well in in LA, like, you know, in their their world playing out there. They'd never been to the East Coast before. never played New York before. And they rolled through Philly and they play our show. Nicest guys you could ever imagine. And then like, a couple years later, it just happens. For, I mean, it not just happens for them. Right. Like, they they did the work. Right. They, yeah. they did the work. But like they're in, you know, they're in Johnny Walker commercials and Jack White's taking them on tour. And they're like, they're up for like, they're, they're getting Grammy noms like later on and stuff like that. Like it's, it's been fantastic to watch their career over all these years and just think like I was there like at the beginning for them, just another stop on the way for them. But I remember them being really, really nice guys. Uh, and they played almost entirely with my back line because <laughs> they didn't, <laughs> they didn't have amps with them or anything. They just flown over with their guitars. Um, and I, I had to supply a back line for them too. So uh, uh, I hope they, I hope they enjoyed it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so, how, so how does the podcast start? Do you, um, did you, I guess, did you put planning pre-planning into it or did you just, were you just like, I'm a podcast now and just jump right in? Well, that was you, early in the space. Like, yeah, that was, I, I started the show in 2014, fall of 2014. Uh, all the while that I was doing these shows at Fleischer and helping people make records, uh, it was in the back of my head. Cause I was already like, I was a pretty avid podcast listener. Like I listened to a lot of podcasts uh, and I thought like, I was a big Mark Maron fan. Like I really dug Mark Maron, not just as a comedian, but just like, I liked that these were very long form conversational interviews. It wasn't just questions. And like, I'm also a big like Terry Gross Fresh Air fan as well, but she follows a little bit, a little closer to journalism. She still has conversations. She's got personality, but like I loved Mark Merritt because I was just like, yeah, you just get in there and talk with people and like, you know, it all comes out. Uh, of course, that's you and I both know that's not exactly how it works. Right. But, yeah. you know, but it, it, I it thought, seems like what, it. <laughs> yeah, I thought, what if someone did that, but for Philadelphia musicians or for even at the time, I, I I wasn't even just limited to Philadelphia musicians at first because I had, I saw a friend who toured. So they would like come through Philly and it was like a way to see my friends and be like, well, yeah, come over when you come through Philly to play and we'll talk and I'll go to the show and like, you know, we'll, we'll hang out. That'll be sort of, sort of my way to uh, keep myself relevant, like with my friends who were still, still playing and still, you know, still part of a music community. Uh, and then I just slowly just zeroed in on Philly. I was just like, okay, it's just going to be all Philadelphia now. Uh, I could not tell you when I made that decision or when I stopped, you know, 
having people on and work from Philadelphia, but it would still happen from time to time. I remember uh, through the the DIY boards on on Facebook, uh, uh, a woman reached out to me. Uh, her name was Emily Emily McKelvey, and she was originally from North Carolina, but had been living in South America and like was coming through to play. And she just hit me up on the board. She was just like, Hey, I'm coming through. Can I be on your show? And I was just like, I kind of looked at what she was about to go. Yeah, I'll do this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so that's like the other joy of having your own podcast is that you have your rules and you have your thing, except when you want to change it. And then you just change that's it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's Don't been, I mean, it, what you do. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's been really, really great. Um, and it's kind of the same, you know, same thing for me is like, I just, I like talking to people about music and I, it, you know, and not just music, like um, just any kind of art form or creativity, like things people are passionate about because you, you, you start to find that it's all this, it, it all kind of comes from the same space, you know? Absolutely. And, absolutely. Yeah. The things that drove me to be a songwriter, the things that drove me to play in bands is the same thing that drives people to, write novels or paint pictures or make films or something like that. You know, like it's all at least at, at some point you like, you look out on the world and you say like, well, this is all fine. The things that I'm into, like I said, you want to be influenced, but you don't want to like go out and kind of regurgitate it. And for me, it was like kind of looking out in the world and it's being like, at least when it came to the podcast, I'm like, well, this is the kind of podcast I would listen to. Like I would like to see this in the world and rather than sit around and wait for somebody to do it, I guess I'll just go do it myself. Um, and that's sort of how it started. Now, if you had asked me seven over seven years ago, like, are you still gonna be doing this in seven years? You can make more than 200 episodes. Like, I don't even think I would have known how to answer that question. Like, it's certainly, I tried not to think of it that way. It was just like, for me, I think my initial number goal, if I ever had a number goal in my head, and I doubt I ever really did. But if I did, I think my first goal was like, well, just do 25, like just get 25 out in a row, like stick to a schedule. Don't screw around. Don't like do it a couple of weeks and then be off for a month and then do one and then be off for a couple of weeks. I'm like, get a production schedule and stick to it and go. I'm like, just put out 25 and see where that takes you. And once I got kind of caught up in that, I was getting better at it and I was getting different guests. I wasn't just talking to my friends anymore. Like I was, people were like starting to reach out to me a little bit. And I had a little bit more confidence to like reach out to someone like, like Joe Reinhardt from hop along uh, who at the time were just, were, were on there. They were on their rise right there. Um, and I was like, super nervous to talk to him because i was just like well this is a guy and he's in a band and they're on saddle creek records and you know this and, that. and he just comes over and he's just this dude like and now every time we would see each other it's like we're just it's it's just your your friends now like you know yeah and he's very tall so i can always see him coming um, <laughs> uh and then like through that i just i started reaching out to people like that's when i reached out to like john batiste because i was reading the key that was kind of how i was getting the it was helping me figure out like okay maybe i can talk to this person or maybe i can talk to that person and then i just reached out to john one day again thinking like well, this guy works for xpn like he's not going to want to come and talk to me but then instantly he's like oh yeah absolutely and again like john and i like we're sort of professional colleagues in this world as well now but we're friends like you know we're we we like to just chat and like talk about how you know each other's lives are and you know like talk about each other's personal lives with each other and things like that. You know, it's, it's very nice. That's what I love about the music community in Philadelphia is that like the line between, you know, 
professional networking and just honest to God friendship, a, a hang, if you will. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so thin and, but not in a weird way. I don't think, it, I don't think, I don't think the ones of us who are good at this, like confuse one with the other. We know when it's time. Like I know when it's time for me to be like, okay, I'm, I'm the interviewer now and we're going to do this. And I know when it's time to be like, all right, cool. Like when I run into them at shows and stuff like that, you know, it's ever just kind of genuinely glad to see each other. Yeah. The, um, so, you know, you touched on something that I really wanted to ask you about and that was your production schedule at any point. Um, did you, you know, you've made it over 200. What are you, you just last episode was two nineteen, right? Yeah. Yeah. The one I just dropped this week. Um, So like, um, at any point, was there any thought in your mind of stopping? Like, did, or were you like, once you started, it it went? Um, I think, like I said at the beginning, I was just kind of had my head down, and I was like, just put one out after the other, just put one out after the other, and try and make each one you put out be a little better than the last one you did. Learn something if you and you have to kind of go back and listen to your own work, um, which. I had a hard time with it first and now I have no problem with it at all because it's like, well, this is how I get better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The same way that like when I was in college and I was, you know, involved in college radio and all that, we would do air checks and we'd have to listen to our own air checks. This is what you sound like on the mic. Essentially get over it, like get over that. You're hearing your voice on the mic and you sound funny. Okay. That's cool. The first few times you're going to feel that. But when I was, you know, and I was taking classes in, you know, production and like, like almost like NPR documentary style production and things like that. I was very fortunate enough to have a great mentor, a uh, man named Dan Bergeron, uh, who's a, also a accomplished folk, like regional folk singer as well. Uh, he's, he's toured all over. Um, like he was super helpful in that he showed, he gave us the tools. He gave us good, you know, a good bedrock and technique. And then he said like, go out and make literally whatever you want. He's like, talk to whoever you want. He's like, just, use the bedrock of these production techniques. He's like, that's all I want you to do. He's like, I don't care what it's about. He's like, you can, you can talk to your mom. He's like, as long as you use these production techniques that I'm, that I'm asking you to learn. Uh, and that gave me a leg up when it came time to do a podcast because I didn't have to learn how to structure a show. I didn't have to learn how to talk into a mic. Like I already knew how to do that. Uh, uh, you know, I obviously would get better as, as time went right. on, but it wasn't like I was starting from nothing where someone's just like, we want to start a podcast. So I'm be like, Hmm, how would I do that? You know, I was proficient in, in pro tools. I was proficient in like in, in a digital editor. Um, and I knew things like headroom and EQ and compression and things like that. Uh, I knew all that stuff just from studying, mm-hmm. studying broadcast. Uh, so I was able to hit the ground running, maybe, like half a step faster than a, someone who didn't know those things. I'm not saying that those things gave me like tons and tons of, you know, like, oh, I was so far ahead of my peers. I'm like, I was a half step ahead yeah. of peers. Maybe. <laughs> when, do, when do you think it clicked? Like, um, do you, can you pinpoint like an episode or a guest where you got done and you were just like, I, 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 I'm, I'm in the zone and I know exactly what I'm doing? The, the joke I often make with people when they finish the interview and like we'll go upstairs and I'm seeing them out there just like, oh, how do you think that went? And I'd be like, I am the last person to ask, yeah. right? <laughs> I have no idea. Like, I need to get a, a, a touch of distance from this and then I got to sit down with the tape. And then when I sit down with the tape, I have a pretty good idea of how it went. And it turns out that it always went fine. Like, yeah. no, matter yeah. what, no matter what I think happened. Sometimes I'll leave interviews thinking like, 
I don't know if we really got anywhere, you know, obviously, you know, we had a conversation and like, you know, things were talked about and it was pleasant, but I'll walk away from things being like, all right, that might not have been quite as, you know, earth shaking as I would have liked it to be. And then I'll go back and listen to the tape and I'll be like, no, we talked about great stuff. Like, you know, you just have to, when you're right, when you finish, you are the least qualified person to, to consider how it went. Um, But I think somewhere, Somewhere in the 30s or 40s of my episodes, uh, I was just starting to interview a lot more people that I didn't know. Um, so obviously, you have a different sort of approach to people that you don't know because um, they're not my friends. I don't have you know that rapport, that history with them. And my production was getting a little tighter. Um, I was starting to like streamline and use some of those older techniques that I learned was an undergrad of you know just how to streamline, how to make things better. And of course, I had the benefit of now being almost 20 years ahead in terms of technology, where I had so many more things that I could do that I couldn't do, you know, back when I was younger, I could do it now. Um, And that's when I started to kind of find my stride. I was like, okay, I think I know what this is about. And I started having people play like in the room more at that point and discovering that that was a lot of fun uh, to just very quickly think I'm like, well, they're going to come and they're going to talk. And then in about five minutes, I need to be able to set them up to play. So it means like we don't get to have all the bells and whistles and procedures that we would go through if this was a recording studio and we were making a record or cutting a single. Like it's like two mics, put them in the right place, dial a couple of things in on my on, on my board real quick, but like real simple and be like, I right, go. And then the performances you would get out of that, I mean, raw is, is, is something to say, but it's immediate. It's an immediate performance. And I would go and tweak a little bit, you know, play volumes a little bit and just like do a little bit of EQ, just very, very light stuff. So I was like, I want this to sound like, to whoever's listening to it, I want it to sound like what it sounded like to me, you know, sitting in this room eight feet away from, you know, whoever's playing some from someone like uh like like john fay or something like that you know uh that's what i wanted i wanted i'm like this isn't perfection like this is an audio tree this is an npr like this is me in a base space with, yeah. with two with two sm57s just being like all right this is what it sounds like that's awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny you you mentioned when you started talking to people that weren't your friends, because like that's when I finally started to um, uh, feel like this was something like when yes. I started when I started like having to do research, you know, and uh, like that was a big thing, you know, like write know. things down, you know, yeah, things like notes, that. you know, instead of just yeah. like, hey, remember that time when we were when yeah. we were playing at, um, you know, the, the Grape Street Pub and this was yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, uh, it's it, um, it, it's it's been a really interesting path um, and journey. Um, I got started um, a long time ago with a bunch of friends. We had like a uh, pop culture podcast and uh, in like 2011, somewhere around there. Um, And then um, I walked away and I was just like, you know, we did that and it was fun, but whatever. And then the pandemic hit and, uh, you know, everybody was doing live streams and stuff. And I just fell in love with music again. And that's really where all of this came from, because like I had been writing pieces for my website or whatnot, but I had always been trying to find something to do a podcast again with. And and this was just, you know, 
where where that came from like how did how did the pandemic affect you because you know obviously yeah. you couldn't have people come over anymore and no. stuff like that so no. um, was it a hard was it a hard pivot or did it did it flow okay um, there were moments in the beginning and I'd say in the first couple of months where I was considering shelving, not necessarily shelving it, but I was like, well, maybe I can just lean more into playlists. Like maybe I can just lean more into that. Um, cause we were all having a hard time with it. Like, I mean, not just from like, you know, the, the existential fear and dread, but like all of us have been doing things one way and, had to do it another way now. And I know this is like the oldest cliche that everyone's been talking about, you know, for this, but there was definitely a couple of moments in there where I thought, I thought I was, I thought I might be done. Um, not because like, just for me being like, I don't know if I have it in me to reinvent the wheel. You know, I was yeah. like, I, I need this show to continue to be what it's about. And it didn't even bother me that we couldn't play out or that like, you know, sort of the, the music performing industry ground to a halt because a lot of my musician friends were way sharper than I was and were able to just hit the ground running and do some live streams and not just the live streams that we put up with for the first few months. Like these people really figured out how to do this well, to have a good production value, to really to offer people something other than just like, Hey, look at me. Uh, and I thought, and as I thought about it later, you know, now that show, you know, shows have kicked back in and people are going to shows. And I think we kind of hit something similar where when shows were first coming back in and we could see shows again, even outside or whatever, we kind of didn't care like yeah. whether it was good or not. Like, we were just like, I'm so happy I'm here. You know, we're so happy to see people to go to engage in this activity that we engaged in up to this point. And I think that faded too, just in the same way that like the, our sort of live stream fatigue, you know, in the spring into the early summer of 2020, that faded out. Like, and you know, cause we were watching like professionals, like I was watching like Taylor from Dawes at his kitchen table and that's yeah. all fine yeah. and good a couple of times. But at some point I was just like, oh, these guys don't know what they're doing either. Like right. or there's a large apparatus around them that makes them you know, present the way that they, they present. And that's how it works in the, in, in the professional world, obviously that's, you know, but I think we saw that a lot more. Um, and I think the same thing when shows came back, I think we were just like, okay, shows, but now I think we're at a point again, where we're like, okay, but it has to be good now. Like, yeah. 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 It was, it was all fun, but like now it has to be good. And I think a lot of bands have kind of figured out how to make a show as opposed to just showing up and seeing a band play. Like, yeah they're you know, making a thing out of it what's really funny is uh i don't know when you went to your first show post pandemic but um it, i it, i went to um we went to see g love at the ardmore music hall with uh chuck trace uh oh, in nice. may it was their first show and um it was the day that i was like two weeks out from my second shot i was like it was like a great celebration but one of the greatest things about that night um besides the fact that someone got kicked out for being drunk and i was like oh my god we're back, we're um, back. <laughs> but uh was how weird people got like audiences just don't know what to do anymore no, and no, it's good. so great to watch <laughs> like, i'm trying to think what my first thing i mean i i went to some outdoor stuff um i mean talk about a music community that got super creative for a year uh like they were having bands up on the the upper like deck of pharmacy at 18th and wharton 
And so like, it was, it was like a let it be concert, essentially. Like, you know, they were, the bands were like up on this area and we would just hang out in the street. You know, you could distance as well as you wanted from anyone, wear your mask. Like I ride up to it on my bike and just like hang out and watch, you know, bands play, you know, a story up above you. Uh, or think about Sunflower Philly, which came out of nowhere. Like that was a, well, I mean, Sunflower Philly had always been a thing that was always a community arts space um, in an area, you know, slowly being gentrified uh, over the last few years. But the, uh, you know, Marley from Johnny Brenda's like said like, well, let's get a couple bands in here and see what happens. And boom, it was probably the most vibrant show scene we had going on like on sort of the philadelphia level and i saw a handful of bands that way and it was a really great time uh because you could just be outside in the back you could have your beer and then you could just leave (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, but we got really creative we got really good at figuring out how to do that and i mean and it's not special to us a lot of people figured out how to do it but we you know we did it in our way we did it in our philly way that's 100%. You know, it's it's amazing and it's it, it's made me love this area and it's made me love music. Um I, I just appreciate it more. Um maybe because, you know, for the longest time I didn't know what live music like I didn't know what would survive and a lot of places didn't. Sadly, a lot of great oh, places man. are gone, you know, like like boot, and saddle, like boot and saddle is gone and that's like that was my spot. That was my favorite spot to see bands in i used to live and i used to live two blocks around the corner from there oh um one of the the i had an apartment at 13th and dickinson like you know we were right around the corner excuse me shows all the time because they ended at 11 and they weren't very loud like yeah and those were all limitations of that particular venue which made it a very desirable venue for me also like you could just go and hang out at the bar when your friends were playing and I didn't even have to go in. Like if I didn't have time or I didn't want to commit to a whole night, I could just show up before, hang, have a drink, see everyone, and then go home. Um, which as you get older is like your favorite part of the night, the part oh, where you go home. Oh, I love leaving things early. Oh, it's the best. I used to be the guy who would be there like till the till last call and one now. Yeah. Exactly. And now I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> Headliner starts. I nod for a couple of songs. I just look and I just I'm like, it's time to time to Irish goodbye. This one. No hundred percent. Um, no one knows when you leave. Once the headliner starts, no one knows when you leave. Yeah. So you just recently in May had your 200th episode. Um, do you have have you accomplished kind of more than you wanted or are you kind of like, I, obviously, you're not going to quit. <laughs> you're going strong but um do you do you see a next level like what's the next step that's that's an interesting question uh and it's something i've definitely thought of because i uh i was glad to have sort of that ramp up of the 200 uh because it gave me something to work for uh and i got more serious about sort of uh the publicity aspect of it as well because i was like well you only get one 200 so like let's not waste it um and you know and i i you know to be perfectly honest you know i had a, had a little bit of that biden stimulus money kicking around so i was just like well i can you know what can i do with this besides you know buy some shit on amazon that i don't need uh so i engaged a publicist i i worked with uh with with maggie poulos uh from mixtape media who i had a relationship with as she's as someone who would you know pitch me guests 
Uh, and that was a great, it was great to be on that side of it. I'd never really been on that side of it and it was wonderful and, you know, got the show written about and talked about in places that hadn't been talked about before and increased listenership. And that was really great. And then to talk with someone like Helen Light as my 200th episode, I mean, I've been listening to Helen on the radio literally since I set foot in this city for the first time. Like she's been a presence, not just on just XPN, but like a presence as part of Philadelphia music. She was, she was doing what you and I are doing long before you and I were doing it. And she was doing it. She was lucky enough to be able to do it at a, you know, a big market station like Philadelphia, you know, as people talk about the success of just the Philadelphia music community and sort of how we've risen up over the last decade, uh, WXPN is a huge, huge part of that. Like, and some people, love that and some people don't love that like you know some people think that there's that maybe they're not giving the attention to everything that they can but i think between xpn and the key which i also think needs to be thought of slightly separately from xpn because john runs it a little differently than a radio station john's approach is to include as many people as humanly possible, including writing about me, like writing about my shows and my guests and like bringing me into it as well, which he doesn't have to do. They don't have to do that. Like I, they're a radio station. They don't have to have anything to do with me. They don't have to acknowledge that I exist. Uh, and the fact that they do is pretty great. I've gotten to, I've gotten to do guest spots on that, on that station multiple times. And if you think that's not just the biggest thrill for me, like it, it is, I love it. Uh, again, being a radio guy, going all the way back to you know to to being in being in college, uh, but the convoluted way of me answering is that like, what is the next step? I'm not sure, but I've come to these crossroads before, uh, where I think like, well, what's next? What's next? And rather than like coming up with a big scheme or coming up with a big thing, I just kind of go back to my mode when I was first starting out, which is just like just keep putting them out one after another after another keep talking to people you've never talked to before keep delving into parts of the music the larger music communities that i'm not familiar with like this week's episode is an excellent example of that like rasan lucas and afro taino i'm familiar with almost none of the artists that he works with it's just not it's not my world i'm not familiar with it but i know rasan from the, the community and that that's my in right there is the person. Uh, but I love being able to talk to people like that. Uh, and I just, I think I'm just going to keep doing that uh, yeah. until something else presents itself. Uh, I've, I've toured with the idea of doing, I mean, right before the pandemic, I was starting to think of the idea of like, I should maybe like put on some showcases, like do like some live music things or something like that. And obviously, you know, that, that had to take a, take a back seat, you know, over the last couple of years but I'm kicking around with that idea again, like kind of getting back into show promotion a little bit, but again, I want to do it my way. I don't want to, I'm not trying to compete with venues and I'm not even really trying, if I were to go about doing it, I'm not even really trying to operate like a venue. I'm trying to operate like me, like the way that I would do it. Yeah. Um, I still not entirely certain what that is, but you know, the, the wheels are moving and it's not like, uh, it's not like I have a lack of, amazing people to make involved with it. Like I can jump, I can jump on Gmail and start sending emails to people and like would probably have, you know, stuff pretty quickly. Uh, so I want to make sure that it's worth everyone's time. 
you know, uh, and not have it be this. Because if, if, if you have a half-baked podcast and it's just you as the host, then it's whatever. You're just wasting your own time. Like, it's, right. it's fine. Um, but when you involve other people and you want other people to put their name on it and you want to put your name on things with other people, then, like, you have to make, you got to make damn sure it's worth everyone's time. That's well, I, I can't disagree more. Like, you know, time is literally the only thing that kept me back from kind of branching out from just interviewing my friends early on was because I just didn't want to waste anybody's time. And I didn't. And, you know, time's super valuable. Um, And 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 no, no one knows that more than myself, you know, like just <laughs> yeah. from, like like, you know, my time is valuable, too, you know, but um, and I was always concerned about that. But once, you know, once I started to understand kind of the process and what I was doing. And once I got more comfortable, then, you know, it was so much easier to not, to not feel like I was wasting someone's time. Yeah. You, you, you want to feel like you have something to offer. And this is something I've said before uh, in, in press and on the show is that like when you're in a band, you're always asking for something. Cause that's, you know, it's always like, you know, come to my show, play my record, put me on the radio, you know, buy my record, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that's fine. Like, that's kind of how it works. I mean, then there's community and there's give and take, you know, and there's, you know, that's how good communities uh, function. But for me, when I started doing the show, I was just so very happy that I, when I asked someone to be on the show, I had something to offer them. They had something to offer me. There was someone to be on the show and, you know, they had their own, you know, little group and people who knew what they were. So it was only going to help me, but like, I had something for them. I wasn't just asking them to help me out. And then maybe further down the line, if things work out, maybe I can help you out. It's just like, no, I have an immediate thing for you. I have an immediate outlet for you and you have a thing that needs an outlet. So, you know, it's nice to have that be, I have a much better relationship. I think now in the community and it's like also cause I'm older um, as a podcaster is doing what I am right now than I think I ever did as being in a band because when you're in a band you're just you're so focused on your thing and you're not really looking at the larger ecosystem around you whereas now that I've talked to so many different kinds of people who are all part of it in different ways I'm so much more aware of not only the larger ecosystem that is you know the Philadelphia music community but how it all fits together and I don't know if I would have been as cognitive of that if I was, you know, just in a band trying to have shows and make records. My thanks again to Dan Drago for joining me today on the podcast. For more info on Dan's podcast, visit www.25o'clockpod.com and make sure to subscribe. And be sure to follow him on the socials at 25o'clockpod on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25o'clockpodcast. And join us next week for part two of our interview where Dan enters the jauntlet. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. This podcast, where are you listening to it right now? Where are you listening to it? Wherever that is, subscribe. And if you've been a good human being this year and you want to find yourself on Santa's nice list and earn yourself a super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world, you can do so just by rating and reviewing us. Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yothatsmyjohn for updates and live streams. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Yo That's My John and search Yo That's My John on YouTube to find the Yo That's My John YouTube channel. And then 
While you're there, like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out, and touch some John. That's all we have for you today. Join us Thursday for the John Before Christmas, and then again next Monday for part two of my interview with Dan Drago. Blue skies. Until next time, everybody. Hey, yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be measured. Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo that's my john at gmail.com. Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash ytmj slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout to the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs>